So Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 14. This is the reading of God's holy word. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him, stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusts and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to this passage today. It seems to be a lot of different things happening, but there's a thread. And you communicated to us through your word and you want your word to be known. And so I pray that you'd help us to see what you would have us in this text, that we would understand the choice made before us today and understand what it means to be all in as followers of you. I pray for those that don't know you today, that they would see a very real invitation today and they would respond. And for those that have responded, they would understand what that response means for the rest of their life. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right, so I want to establish this sermon a little bit and kind of set it up. And so to set it up, go to Luke chapter 18. Whenever I turn to separate passages to begin a sermon, I'm not trying to just add more text to the sermon for no reason. Um, you get plenty of it in the actual text. What I'm trying to do is uh, help us to approach the text, because often every week, you know, if I had my way... I would just have a day where I said, I'm going to preach the gospel of Luke, and I would come here and preach for like 20 hours straight, right? And then we would all get it. It would be awesome. And uh, it would be great. We'd just go through the whole book, and you keep the context. But often, every week, we have to re-enter the text, and as we enter it, we have to enter it from wherever we are. And so it's helpful to do that a little bit. Luke 18 establishes for us in verse 31 uh, a theme we see sort of all throughout Luke's gospel. 
If you notice in Acts chapter 18, verse 31, so this is all coming up a little bit later, he foretells his death, in this case, a third time. It says, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man, uh, maybe uh, written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus predicting and saying what's going to happen to him coming up, right? And we read this and like, of course he's saying that. But the disciples, notice, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So keep in mind, they did not see what he was saying. They were blind to it. Now contrast that with verse 35, because remember, this is a literary masterpiece. God is doing something in how these things are put in order. He says, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The question I want to ask right at the beginning of this is the contrast. If you stop for a second and think of it, first, you see the disciples clearly getting told by Jesus what's about to happen. And they were unable to like see it. They couldn't hear it. They couldn't see it. They weren't able to understand it. And then contrast that with a blind man who cannot see Jesus at all, who cries out to Jesus, and then he's given sight to actually see. Luke's doing something with his passages all through all the gospels, this idea. And the question we have to ask ourselves as we look at this, because it's not just, hey, isn't that neat, right? Is why couldn't the disciples see what he was saying, and yet the blind man could? That's a question you ought to ask yourself when you read the text. It's presented to you in order to do that thing. The question I would say, or the answer to that question might be, only one of those parties was actually looking. Let's take a quick look at a video. Go with me back to Luke chapter one. We're keeping our our minds in Luke for just a moment. I want to capture what Luke's doing. This helps us to understand what's in the text. One of the things I do when I preach that I want you to see is I want you to understand that none of the things I'm saying come from a magic place. In other words, I'm not a guru sitting there waiting for magical things to hit me on high from heaven, but we've been given a text of scripture and the Holy Spirit who, and, and, in us who did it, we can understand it. So I want you to understand where I'm coming from as well. And so in Luke's gospel, he begins with this statement. This guides us through all of the sermons, right? So he starts off and says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word..." have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This is someone he's writing to about the, the, the events of the gospel, right? And he said, I'm doing all this, verse four, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now listen, I know we have doubts in our Christian life. I know those things are true. But often when we think about certainty in the Christian life, we tend to not wanna be openly bold about that. I quoted this on Tuesday just a little bit, but G.K. Chesterton says this in his book, Orthodoxy, which is actually one of his good ones. He says, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. 
The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. In other words, you'll hear people say, I'm certain that I'm a girl, or I'm certain that I'm a, a, a donkey, or I'm certain that I feel this way, or I'm certain about that, but we're uncertain about the multiplication table. We're uncertain about the reality of things that are you know, verifiable that you can see. And I want to make this very plain to you today, that as the gospel's written, it does provide proof, it does provide evidence, but more than that, it's meant to give you everything you need as a Christian, as someone hearing this, to make a decision. Now, God superintends that, all that on the side, but there's, there's a response demanded, and Luke's gospel really hits to the heart of it. Now, when you think about this for a second, I want to I say this in a most plain way. You cannot live the Christian life without certainty in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, and this is a big thing to say, we are meant to have this certainty, and what makes this certainty so compelling and relevant in our passages, we think about it, is this, Jesus cuts through in our passage today all the false logic, all of the dangerous indifference, the destructive inaccuracy, and the dumb indecision, and presents us with a black and white choice with no shades of gray. Who do you say he is? And he's doing it all through the gospel. We've seen this over and over again, but it's this passage in particular that, that sort of demands this decision. And there's no sort of, you know, all of us that are sit here and wonder. Now, this is not only for the person here that's not a believer. It is also for the believer to remember what it means to be all in for Jesus, that we're, you know, there's no trepidation on, on whether we're all in or not. There's this all or nothingness of this passage is very, very helpful for us. So let's go to the first point and understand it. We can get very easily distracted. Go to chapter 11, verse 14. And I want to, first I'm going to explain to you why I took the passage that, that I did. All right. So when you, one of the challenges in preaching and going through a text is figuring out where to stop. And sometimes when you hear me read it, it might seem kind of arbitrary, right? Like why stop there and not go over here and what have you. But if you look for a second in chapter, four, in chapter 11, verse 14, it says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. That means the original is like that he's dumb. It's a dumb. They call it dumb. You know, deaf and dumb, meaning you could not speak. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. That's a big deal. And the people marveled. That's all good. But verse 15, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Beelzebul is uh, the Lord of the flies, and, the, and Jesus associates him with Satan in the same way he associates Baal, the false worship of these other gods with Satan. And so, Notice the response to his miracle is that he did it because in the power of Satan. Now, verse 16 is key, though. It says, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, before we actually get into the, 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 the bulk of the passage, notice right now what Luke's doing. He's tying together two responses to this miracle. One, Jesus did this miracle in the power of Satan. Or, and two, basically people said, well, we're still seeking a sign from heaven from you. Now, in this first section, we're going to see Jesus answer or rebut the, the logic, the bad logic about saying that Satan did it, right? He's going to say that's dumb, basically. But he doesn't answer the second part until you go all the way down to verse 29. He says, the crowds were increasing and he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. So Jesus then responds to that. Does that make sense? So what that tells us, and just this is a little Bible study for a moment, is that when I look at this passage, I know that verses 29 to 32 have to be linked with our passage. You guys all follow that? Because it's answering what was happening, which means the passages in between 24 to 28, they have to go with it because it's the same section. You guys all follow me? And then if that makes sense, verses 33 to 36 sort of capstone that thing. And then when we look at verse 37, even though it could go with it, the, the subject matter changes. Now we're talking about the Pharisees 
And that's a reasonable place for me to stop and say, I'll do a new sermon there. You guys all follow? That's why we did that? Okay, cool. Now let's go on. I, I, it's not a mystery. I just want you to understand this. Okay, so in this first section, the, the big mistake I think we're prone to make is to make this all about spiritual warfare. This passage, we tend to want to talk all about Beelzebul. We want to all talk about, you know, Jesus versus Satan, okay? And that's kind of not even what it's about, not ultimately. What do I mean by that? What it's about is stupid arguments, that's what this passage is about. Jesus is rebutting bad arguments. So again, he casts the demon out. That's the context here. And the people respond and say, he did it because Satan gave him power to do that. And Jesus' response is, that's dumb. That's the whole first passage. That's his whole, <laughs> when you see that, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. All the details are incidental in a sense. And what do I mean by that? Jesus' response, verse 17 says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? In other words, he's saying, why would Satan go against himself? If a demon's on Satan's team, and I cast out demons based on Satan, how would Satan defeat Satan? That's silly. Now, not to be political for a second, but it reminds me of hearing our government tell us that Putin destroyed the Nord Stream pipeline himself because that makes sense to himself. I'm like, it just reminded me of this passage. I'm like, what a stupid argument. I'm not telling you what I, who I think did it, but, uh, but, <laughs> but it's certainly not Putin. Why would Putin destroy his, like, Putin's really going to get us in the, you know, he's really defeating himself, punched himself in the face to really get us. It's so stupid and we're not used to logic. So that's why this passage, we're going to see the logic of what he's saying. He says, it doesn't make sense. Your argument is dumb right? Like Satan doesn't cast out Satan. That's a dumb argument. He's calling them on their idiocy, their, their false refutation of Jesus. And by the way, this is really key. We want to be nice to people. We want to be gentle to people, but remind yourself that the arguments against Jesus are almost all bad. People that are serious about examining the claims of Christ will be very modest in their claims. This is not a modest claim. They're saying that Jesus did this miracle that nobody could deny. And they're saying that Satan did it. And he says, verse 19, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, he says, okay, so if I did that by Satan, who do your sons cast out demons by, if that's what this is? They, therefore, they will be your judges. Every single one of the exorcist, Jewish exorcists that are casting out demons will be your judge, the ones you like, okay? Verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's like, so if your logic is bad, if, if it's me that did it by the kingdom of God, by the finger of God, this is not, the finger of God doesn't mean it was easy. This is a, a Hebrew idiomatic expression. It simply means like in Exodus, when they talk about the miracle in Exodus, they said, oh, this is the finger of God. It just means that God did it. He's like, if God did it, that means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. The king is here, the true king. And he goes, and just so you know, and here's where the spiritual warfare stuff is present. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusts and divides his spoil. He's basically saying, Satan's sort of a, a grand, strong guy. And if I am taking and casting out demons, that means I basically punched him in the face, made him sit there while I took his stuff and walked away. What's up? That's what Jesus just said. So first he said, your argument's dumb. Satan didn't cast out Satan. And secondly, if he didn't cast it out, that means God did it. And if that's the case, that means who's the one in this, in this position here who has the power, Satan or me? I just walked in and took what I wanted. What are you gonna do about that? That's Jesus right now. Right? He's like, what are you going to say about that? That's what he's saying. And then he says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's the, that's the key. He bases there's no neutrality. That's what he's trying to say. You can't be neutral. 
So this whole argument that you see was really predicated on this idea that you have to make a decision and your decision of Satan was Satan or this and that is a bad one. Now, to establish this, there's a precedent for this kind of language. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 18. And if you're not sure where that is, you'll get to it later. Just do your best. You can just listen if you don't want to turn. Um, I put together a study guide, if you will. You can look at it later and all the verses are there so you don't have to write them down frantically, but you can just take notes if you like or, or turn there. It's really helpful to learn where stuff is. All right, so just to kind of sum it up, Elijah is back in the day, and Ahab was a kind of a wicked king of Israel's there. And, uh, and so Elijah and Ahab are going to have a showdown. God told them to do it. And uh, he says this, verse 19, let's look at that. It says, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of, of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So the kingdom of Israel had been invaded by satanic worship. And so this one guy is going to have a showdown. Now, what's key about the showdown is that it's giving us an epistemological you know, playing field. That's a big fancy word, but that just simply means it's giving them a, a, a mechanism to decide who's right. This is a, a, a showdown, okay? And so they say, okay, they get them all together. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together in Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, now here's the key, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? This was his statement to whom? Elijah came near to all the people. His conflict was with the prophets, these false prophets, but his audience was not the false prophets. His audience was the nation of Israel. And what he was trying to say is, it's stupid to believe in these false satanic gods. It's dumb. It's not good. And how often are you gonna go on limping between two opinions, meaning it's not helpful for you to do that. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He said, it's an all-in endeavor. And let me just put that to you right now. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, as you sit here today, and we don't get to wiggle out of this, is Jesus who he says he is, then Gandhi isn't like, like our hero. If Jesus is who he says he is, Buddha wasn't right. If Jesus is who he says he is, you know, Islam is a cult. If Jesus is who he says he is, he is the only way, truth, and life, and no other way works. There's no special spiritual tarot cards. There's no special, Jesus is the only way, he's, there's no other way. And if that's true, then follow him and stop pretending with these other things. And if it's not true, don't mess around. Don't say, oh, he's just a good teacher. I'll still get wisdom from him. How could he be a good teacher if he accepts worship from people and tells them that he's God if he's not? And so as C.S. Lewis famously said, he'd be a liar or at best, maybe a lunatic, but in either case, not someone we wanna listen to if he's not who he says he is. And so that's what happens with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now, fast forward through the whole story. They, they basically get all these altars and he says, you sacrifice to your God and I'll sacrifice to mine. So they all cut themselves, do this stuff, try to make fire come down from heaven and nothing happens. And Elijah mocks them the whole time. He basically says, hey, maybe your God's, you know, going potty <laughs> or he's taking a nap. <laughs> that's why he's not doing it. He's just mocking him, all right, in front of the people. So you got, you know, 450 prophets of Baal sitting there like going crazy, cutting themselves, chanting, doing stuff trying to make this thing happen. And then you, meanwhile, you have Elijah just sitting over there mocking them. Then it's his turn. And he says, fill this thing with water. It's make this hard to light the fire. And then all of a sudden he prays to God, fire comes down and lights it up. And he says, okay, there's your choice. This is obvious. The choice is clear. And then they go and go kill all those prophets. And so the people see this. There was an all or nothing showdown. Jesus is in the same kind of thing right now with the people of Israel again. He's basically saying, follow me or not. The choice is clear. You either gather with me or scatter, but that's it. 
There's no other place. If, if Stop limping between two opinions. Stop messing around. And the Pharisees, we're going to see next week, um, you know, their denial of the obviousness of this is really, really bad. So think about this for a minute. They marveled at the mute man speaking, but marveling is not the same thing as faith or trust. And so they were limping between two opinions. Wow, this is really cool, but I still like these other things over here. And that's some of you right now. You come to church, you're like, I kind of like Jesus. I like the community, but I'm not sure if I like that. Who cares what you like? What, what matters if it's true? If it's true, you know, like, then it doesn't matter if you like this or that. You know, it's like you care because it's true. It doesn't matter if you like the doctor's office with what they say is true. It matters, you know, sensibly. So there's no refuting Jesus. That's what you see in this first part. The choice is clear and there's no neutrality. Jesus wants them to pick sides. That's the key of our passage. And it's going to go all the way to the end of it. Think for, think this for a minute. So what's fascinating to me when you think about this is that we've come out of a time where we're used to this illusion of secularism. Secularism tries to say, I'm going to be indifferent to all these things. And, and what Jesus is saying is, I need you to make a choice. And so Christians used to be seen as sort of extreme in a way, right? Because they're like, why are you so all or nothing? Why are you so in everyone's face making a choice? That's kind of the argument now. But isn't it ironic that now that our culture is so thoroughly pagan that it's the culture trying to be extreme saying you need to make a choice? And they're being honest, at least. The lines are drawn. They've always been drawn. At least now we're starting to see it. The culture is saying, if you're not going to affirm the LGBTQ plus minus everything else, you know, A, B, C, D, F, G, alphabet crew, then you're wicked and evil. And if you're not going to have these, the, you know, if you're not going to affirm this stuff, you're wrong and upsetting. The Bible's hateful and blah, blah, blah. Like they want you to make a choice. They want you to make a choice about each of these things. The line has been drawn. It's not, we're not the ones drawing it anymore. The culture's drawing it. We, you know, we try to retreat back and just be like, nice. We're the ones making the old school liberal argument. Do your own thing, man. But it's interesting that both sides, there's a real line. And so when you wake up from the matrix, when you realize that this line has always been there and you have to make a choice, that's what Jesus was saying all along and the culture saying all along. There's no you know, halfway here. There's a real choice. The choice, I would say, with Jesus is clear. And so just to make that aware, look at these next little stories that we see. So the next thing we see after this whole story about Jesus telling the Pharisees their argument was dumb, basically, is that he keeps talking. Now, just for the sake of argument, when you read this, I don't like red letter Bibles because all the Bibles are Christ or God's word, okay? But if you look at a red letter Bible, one of the things that's helpful is you'll notice that Jesus is still talking. And so chapters and verses are added later, but he's still speaking. So we're still in the same subject matter. You guys follow that? And so he goes on after saying, whoever gathers with me is with me, and otherwise you scatter, right? The either or choice, no neutrality. And then he explains what that looks like. In other words, you say to yourself, Jesus, you need to make a choice. And then he now addresses what it looks like if you don't make one. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. He's describing right now self-help, self-improvement. So you have a house full of demons, let's say. He's talking about a person, let's say. Let's just use this and you get rid of it. Let's say you have rats, all right? and you get rid of the rats. Great, he says. That's exciting. But when the rat goes outside and realizes, I've got nothing to eat outside, it says, you know what? I'm going to go back in the house and get more food because that's where I was eating. And so what does he say? And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So the rat's like, man, you kicked me out of the house. You used the broom. You got me out of here. There's no food. And he's like, but I'm hungry. I'm going to go back. And I'm going to tell my old rat buddies. And then you come in. Now you're infested with rats. And ooh, look, you clean the kitchen. Now I know where the bread is or cheese or whatever. Rats eat cheese, right? Okay. So 
The basic idea of the demons and the self-help idea is even if you try to do the right thing, if Jesus isn't in it, so if you just empty the cup, if you just get rid of the bad habits in your life, you're just going to pick them up again. Say, you know, I'm going to stop this one addiction, you'll pick up a different addiction. You stop this one problem, you'll have another problem someone else, somewhere else. Even when your life's going great, maybe you, can relate, maybe you can relate with this. Man, when I get through this, we're coming into this moment. You're all going to do this. We all do this. Wow, when I can get through this, this Christmas season, if I can get through Thanksgiving dinner, all the prep, then I can relax, right? And that's what I love about these holiday seasons. There's one after another. I'll get through Halloween, then I got to get through this. And I, get, and I love that anticipation so much. But you want to get through it, and then you'll be, you know, oh, I can relax. And that's how we are with our problems, right? You fix a problem at work, and then you got a problem at home. And say, well, I'm going to fix that one, and then you got a problem somewhere else. And you're covering, putting your finger in all the dikes, you're running out of fingers and toes, and there's just more problems coming out. It's just going to pop up somewhere else. Self-improvement without Christ is just delaying the inevitable. It's delaying the inevitable. When you empty the cup and just leave it empty, it gets filled again with crap. The only way to actually have anything change is to be born again and be made new. Without Jesus, all of your self-help, all of your tips are silly. Now, 2 Peter points this out. Go there briefly. 2 Peter's after Hebrews, and this is a little harsher than maybe it seems like he's saying, but I don't think it, it, it is, actually. Because remember, he's talking to these Pharisees, rebuking them. He's not giving us a, a happy-go-lucky message right here. In 2 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 17. Peter says it this way, talking about these false teachers. Now, these false teachers are people that proclaim that they believe in Christ, but they do not actually believe in Christ. What they actually believe in is their own efforts and their own um, sensuous minds. And so notice what Peter says about them. He says, these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. When you, when you stop, don't read past that. If you're living in a desert, a waterless spring is an illusion. It, it points to like the idea that it's going to give you water when you show up to it and you get there and there's no water a mist driven by storm. Like it's not somewhere where you're going to be edified, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's fake. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. That's pretty serious language. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. What does this look like? I'll tell you. It looks like someone going to a church wanting to hear about the only thing they actually need, which is Jesus Christ, and instead hearing about all the tips and tricks on how to make your life better, about how you're a person of influence and how you can improve this. And you're like, Maybe you need to repent and believe in Jesus, right? Like, these mystery by a storm, they speed loud boats of folly. Hey, you can have this or you can have this better if you just follow these tips or you can do these things. It's the folly of the secular self-help invading the church. He says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. He's like, here's how you know these people don't have Christ. Why? For if after they've escaped the defilements of, world, of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in other words, once they've applied the principles of the Bible to their life, well, that's not enough. You're not saved by applying principles to your life. There, this book does not contain teachings that you can follow to save you. Let this sink in again. Some people say the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. That's not true. <laughs> the Bible is a story about what God has done to save the elect. That's what it is. And we are called to put our faith in him. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. Well, if you look at the Bible and use all the tips and tricks and live your life and then are again entangled in your problems and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. In other words, we are surrounded living in a culture where people have been inoculated from the true power of the gospel by people that hold a Bible, that speak about Jesus, but don't actually share 
the gospel. They don't actually share the truth that they need Christ. So instead, we use Jesus to speak moralistic messages about self-improvement. You'll hear this all the time when churches will say this, and I'm ashamed to hear it. When someone says, man, you come to church on Sunday and we'll give you tips that you can use on Monday. Maybe you've heard something like that. I don't know if they still say it that way. We'll give you an application you can use on Monday. No, you need Jesus. You need Jesus on Monday, not just Sunday. And yes, you can have tips and tricks, but why would you waste your time doing that? That's definitely not what the Bible's about. If you go back to the same crap you were before, now you're like, it doesn't even work. You're inoculated from the gospel. To inoculate someone is to give them just enough of a virus so that their antibodies fight it so that when the real thing comes, they're ready to fight it, right? So we, we have a whole Christian culture right now that's giving people just enough Jesus so that their antibodies are ready to fight when the real gospel comes through. And he says, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit and the, sow, the, the pig after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. The problem is that if uh, the problem for a dog returning to its own vomit is not that it shouldn't do it. It's not that its behavior was bad. It's that a dog is doing what a dog does. The problem is not that the pig is doing something wrong. The pig is doing what a pig does. And the man or the woman who wants to improve their life goes back to the problems that they previously had because that's what sinners do. And so unless we are changed, made new, born again, given a new nature, we have no hope. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. You know, the indifference to Christ is not safe. You are not safe. There's no amount of improvement that will make you safe. Satan, listen to this very carefully, Satan will let you rejoice in a new set of grave clothes. And you'll just be content with that, won't you? Indifference to Christ is not safe, but that's not our only problem, is it? That's not our only problem, the, the, the indifference to Christ. Go to the next section. So after saying this, you can kind of see how it follows one thing after another. He's still in the same subject matter. Notice this little, little statement in verse 27. It says, as he said these things. So does that tell you that's a separate section or are we supposed to still associate it? You get it? Like, while he just said these things, here's a response to this. We're still in the same subject. You guys follow that? So as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, so she's like the amener from back then, but she gave a bad amen, right? Because what does she say? Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that which you nursed. First of all, that's great. But, and notice that Luke of all people has Mary lifted up. We see that. But just so we don't miss this, some people say, well, Jesus, and commentators eager to not make this a big deal, try to make it Jesus saying, yes, that's true, but also, but that's not, I think there's a rebuke here that we need to see. Go back to Luke chapter eight, because this is fully in line with what he's doing. Again, Mary's awesome. But that's not, the, the woman saying, hey, Mary's awesome. Hopefully you see, there's that moment where I'm dissing Catholics. You're like, oh no, just relax for a second. <laughs> Luke 8, 19, notice earlier we see his, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And he answered them, well, let her in. That's the queen of heaven. Is that what he says? Let her in, give her veneration and, and not you know, worship, but just, you know. no, she's a co-redemptress, let her in. No, what does he say? He has them. my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God, hear the word of God and do it. Wow, Jesus, that's throwing shade on your family a little bit. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And in like manner, his response to the woman in our passage, look at this again. 
Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse, verse 28. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's the same theme. In other words, the, the veneration of Mary in this case, of just adding in, you would say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Listen, when I push back against the, the, the worship of saints and the praying to Mary and the veneration of Mary, I'm not doing it to be mean. I'm not doing it to say, hey, you can't have that. I'm doing it because there's only one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Jesus Christ. Mary is not a co-mediatrix with Christ. She has nothing to do with your salvation. She is saved in the same way that you're saved. You say, well, she bore the son of God. We're like, yes, but he, like, any, that, <laughs> like, that's great. That's awesome. Her womb was blessed. She did bear the son of God, but none of that actually is what saves you. None of it. The things that saves you is the incarnational work of Jesus Christ dying on a cross for your sins. Well, Mary made that possible, right? Didn't, didn't that true? Didn't Mary make that possible? Um, I don't know. I feel like you're adding an unnecessary part. Well, Matt, why are you being so specific, so narrow about the gospel? Go to Galatians chapter one. Why is it, why am I being so particular that it's only Jesus and not Mary? Why is Jesus, in other words, being so particular, saying it's only me? You know, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Why, why be so particular? Why rebuke this woman? Now, keep in mind, the whole subject matter is earlier we saw them saying Satan did it. And he's like, that's a dumb argument. And then we saw that basically your indifference is not safe. And here you're seeing that inaccuracy about the gospel is not harmless. In Galatians, uh, look at chapter one first. Now understand that Galatians is an interesting letter. I, I love it. It's a hard letter. Every, I remember when I preached Galatians, this is the letter I remember that I preached through that I had the most people leave our church. Um, not because I was being mean to them. They just, they're like, I don't like your tone. I'm like, it's the tone of Galatians. Galatians, I, like my job is to tell you what the Bible says in its tone, right? Does that kind of make sense? So in Galatians, Paul does not greet the Galatian church and says, hey, I pray for you. You're awesome. Like the Corinthian church is full of sin, right? And he's like, you guys are the best. And then he rebukes them. He says, but you're still the best. And he gives them hope. The Galatian church, no greedy, no awesome, no, no, you're the best. He begins by just saying, look at chapter one, verse six. He's like, hey, I'm Paul. Here I am. And he goes, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Whoa! Grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, what he's not saying is we tend to think that if someone denies the gospel, that's what's bad. Well, that's true. That's obvious. But he's saying the problem is not denial of the gospel, but distortion of the gospel. Theological sloppiness is rampant in our nation and in our day. And it matters. Big time it matters because only one gospel saves. If you believe that grace is God did enough to help you so you could finish the rest, you're not saved. Like that, that's a big deal. If you believe that Mary, you're trusting in Jesus and Mary, go back to the, you know, don't pass go, don't collect $200. There's a big deal here. And I'm not being mean by saying, it. what were the Galatians' problem? The Galatians, all they were doing, they, they did this one thing. The Galatians were awesome. They weren't sinful like the Corinthians were. The Galatians were pretty dope, right? They had a lot of good things going, but they had one little problem. The Jewish folks came back in that were the Judaizers and they said, you know what? Jesus is great and all, but you still need to keep the law and be circumcised to be saved. And you, and you might say to yourself, well, what's the big deal? Here's Jesus, and then we'll just make sure we circumcise our kids and have them keep some of the law, do the festivals. That's great, right? And Paul's like, you've abandoned the gospel. What? And he goes, not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
In other words, Paul says, if I come back and I give you a new addition to the gospel, let that person be accursed, even if an angel does it. Even if it's an angel Moroni that does it, let him be accursed. By the way, if you ask the Mormons how they know that they're supposed to you know, follow the gospel, I had a cult guy call me, long story, but just cut it short. I had a guy who was joined a cult by accident, and he said, hey, how do you argue with this? And he was using Genesis 1 to say that God is a man and a woman God, and the woman God's is a Korean woman in LA. And how do you speak to someone in that position? And I said, hey, you know what? Go to Galatians 1 and 6 to 9. I said, go ahead and read it. So he reads it. And he says, and he goes, okay, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I'm like, no, no, no. That's about how Joseph Smith is supposed to be, uh, start the Mormon church. That's the, the, the verse they use to declare they're supposed to start the Mormon church because Mormon church, Joseph Smith apparently is trying to bring us back to the normal gospel. Think about the twisting terribleness of that. And he goes, that's not what that says. I'm like, you're right. That's not what that says. Now let's go back to Genesis and see what your Korean God woman says. And he goes, oh, I'm in a cult. I'm like, yep. <laughs> verse nine. He goes, as we, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And he said, Matt, maybe you're reaching too much. You know, he's just, the woman's just saying, blessed is Mary. Why wouldn't he say, well, Mary's cool, but, but he doesn't say that. He says, but rather, blessed rather, or instead. This is a big deal. Now keep going in Galatians for a minute. Look at chapter five. Notice what he says in verse one. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What kind of yoke of slavery? Well, think of this. You're not under the law any longer. You're freed from the law by the work of Jesus Christ. We'll get to that in the very end of the sermon, but that's kind of what he represents. So why would you submit yourself to things that you don't need to anymore? Why would you go back under a law that's meant to show you your need for a savior? You already have a savior. How many of you go back and put training wheels on your bike just for funsies? Like, you don't do that, right? And most of you, when you get a car, stop riding your bike, which is silly, but still, like, you do it, you're like, I'm not going to go back to that. That's, that's kind of what he's saying. Why would you go back to that? Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, now, let me make this really clear. What he's saying, he's not saying parents don't circumcise your child, all right? What, when he says this, this is a uh, synecdoche. This is a statement that apart for the whole. What he's saying is circumcision is, a, is one event they were doing that, they, that represented them taking upon themselves the law. There's lots of Christian-ish groups that do this. And he says, but I want you to hear the specificness of it. He goes, if you accept this one ritual as a part of your salvation experience, as a necessary part of the Christian experience, if you accept this one thing that seems so innocuous, doesn't it? If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, think about this for a minute. If you accept that Jesus saves you with Mary, how much worse is that? <laughs> If you think that you're going to pray to Mary, you just gave her the, the attributes of deity, that she can, she's you know, omniscient, that she's omnipresent, that she can hear all the prayers at the same time. The reason we can pray to God is that he can hear our prayers and has an eternity to know every hair on my head and yours too, and he never runs out of time because he's outside of time and space, not Mary. Mary is a person, neither is St. Christopher or any of those other people we pray to. This is what they call syncretism. What happened is that as the Catholic Church went in and basically brought the the message of Jesus to nations that had pagan gods, the Greek pantheon of gods, they just changed the Greek gods and put saints on the name. He's like, there, that's fine. Let's keep going. Let's add to it to the gospel. It's like when you go to India, you say, hey, Jesus is awesome. Like, I like Jesus. They put him on their shelf right next to the other idols. That's bad. It's a big deal. He says, I testify to every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who'd be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. 
For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the picture that he says. And he goes on and says, you were running well. Who, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So when this woman says, blessed are the breasts that bore you, you could stop and say, technically that's true, but that's not what Jesus does. He says, you're putting that, that happiness in the wrong place. When it comes to Jesus Christ, you put no one on the pedestal next to him. You put no one near him. He is superior to Moses and he's superior to Mary. She's not part of your salvation experience. She's not part of that ultimately. She's, she's in the story in the same way all sorts of people are in the story, right? Pilate's in the story. We don't thank God for Pilate. Now again, Mary's awesome, but has, that's not what, the, when, he, when it comes to salvation, he's like, no, Jesus stands alone. Salvation is of the Lord. He goes, I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What's the offense of the cross? It's that you can do nothing to sal- for your salvation. I think as the Catholics put it, Mary has so much extra grace because when the angel came to Mary and said, hail Mary, full of grace, is how they translate it. Instead of just saying, hey, Mary, what's up? You're really blessed, which is what it means. They said, hail Mary, full of grace. And people back in the medieval times, not the restaurant, but the Middle Ages, were like, well, Mary has, if she's full of grace, she must have a lot of grace. And so she must have a storehouse of grace. So she might have extra grace to give people that need it. So maybe she can help you out with grace which is where you develop the doctrine of Mary becoming a co-redemptress with Jesus Christ. Do you see how sick that is? When, they, when you hear Catholics talk about the immaculate conception, they're not ta- we saw about the virgin birth, not the immaculate conception. They celebrate the fact that Mary was sinless when she was bearing Jesus. She was immaculate and without sin. Notice the focus of the immaculate conception is on Mary, not upon Christ. That should bother you a lot. And so if you think I'm picking on Catholicism, Check yourself really quickly because nothing I'm saying is untrue. It's just not. And so when he's saying to this woman, his correction to this woman is important. You cannot add to the gospel. Syncretism is dangerous. Integration is death. Notice what Paul says, how serious his rhetoric is in verse 12. He says, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Whoa, I'm not going to get into that super specific, but he says, hey, those ones that tell you you need to be circumcised to be saved, I wish they would just circumcise themselves right off, basically. That's some serious rhetoric, Paul. He's not very gentle with them, is he? It's a big deal. Inaccuracy, when it comes to the gospel, is not harmless. I'm going to say this again. Inaccuracy is not harmless. The choice about who Jesus is is clear and obvious. Indifference isn't safe, but inaccuracy is not harmless. There are people right now in hell who went to church, every day, who put their faith and were very sincere, but they were wrong. They were deceived, and in some cases, deceivers themselves. Sentiment does not save you. God knows my heart. Yep, that's why you need to be born again. (laughs) Sentiment doesn't save you. That's hard to hear. It sounds like I'm being really harsh, and I'm not. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Jesus Christ alone is who saves. No one else. This is the salvation message that we, we believe in. Inaccuracy isn't harmless. And so you say to yourself, well, I don't want to make a mistake about the gospel, so maybe I'll just wait to believe in Jesus till I really know every little bit. Well, let's go to the next section because he addresses that part too. 
29. Now he's answering what the crowd said originally. Notice he says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, what is the sign of Jonah? If you go to Matthew's gospel, we're not going to go there now, he actually refers to Jonah being three days in the belly of a fish, and we're associating Jesus' resurrection, and certainly that's true, but the people of Nineveh certainly didn't know that message. What do I mean by that? Before we go to the rest of what he says, go, let's go to Jonah really quickly. So we're going to uh, go back to Jonah, skip First Kings, just go to Jonah chapter 1, if you can find it. It's after the longer prophets, so Jonah's in the short section. So you just kind of go between, if you see Ezekiel, you went too far, you know, and just go backwards. Um, you just kind of circle around. I never memorize these little books. I just sort of flip around until I find them, right? That's kind of what you do. And so you just flip around right before Micah. You get Jonah. See how he did that? That's fun. Okay, Jonah chapter one. Look at verse one. Here's the story that Jesus is referencing. No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And Luke does not include him being three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Neither does Mark. And he's making a different point than Matthew is. Pay attention very carefully. This is the story of Jonah, so you understand it. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cast call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh are the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were terrible, terrible people to the Jews. The Assyrians were the worst in a way. They, they put them in captivity. They were harmful to them. They, they brutalized them. The Assyrians are the worst. And God comes to Jonah and says, I'm going to send you to the Assyrians, the people that are your mortal enemies that have been persecuting you. I want you to go to those people, the Assyrians, all right? I want you to tell them to repent. And Jonah's like, no way. And so he flees. And Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He goes down and they, there's a big storm. They throw him into a fish, all right? And he ends up on the shore okay, of the land. And so if you go over to chapter two, fish vomits him on the, on the land. Look at chapter two, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish. It vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. He tried to escape the Lord. So we love to focus on Jonah trying to run from God. Maybe you're running from God because he's calling you to make, do all these things. Okay, that's fine. But the, the, the context of Jonah is that Jonah hates the Ninevites. And so he doesn't want to preach the gospel to them because he doesn't want them to be saved. He doesn't want them to repent. Right? You guys all follow that? And so then we see God say, then verse chapter 3, verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Great doesn't mean awesome. Like, hey, cool, it means big, that big city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So we know Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites to repent. Amen? He's like, he doesn't want to tell them much. And so what does he do? So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath, three days to walk through the whole city. And so Jonah began to go into the city, go in a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. I mean, that's, that's it. Hey, everyone, uh, Nineveh's going to be overthrown in 40 days. Cool? All right, peace. That's Jonah. And what's crazy is after that, the people of Nineveh were like, what? That's crazy. Jonah, what an amazing message you just said. I can't even believe that. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them. At least like, this is amazing. This is amazing. And the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He's like, 
what? That's true? And he removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. He's like, we're wrong. We need to repent. And the king's like, let's all repent together. And people are like, that's amazing. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. Now, we know that God was doing something neat, but we'll get into that another time. What's cool, though, is that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is a great picture of salvation. Here's repent. Judgment is coming. And they're like, it is? And so they repent, and he's like, okay, I'll hold it off. And he holds it off for about 120 years so that Nineveh could be used to judge, uh, later to judge the nation of Israel. But anyways, chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What, what? He's so mad because these people that he hates just got graced, mercy. He's mad at that. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, oh Lord, please take my life from me. Just kill me now, for it's better for me to die than to live and watch these people I hate go to heaven, basically. And the Lord sort of rebukes it. Jonah is a great picture of like the reluctant prophet. But what's so key about this story is what was the sign of Jonah to the people of Nineveh? All right, guys, just repent. 40 days, he's going to destroy you, okay? That's good. And people are like, whoa! That's what Luke is pointing out, what Jesus is pointing out right now. He says, look at chapter 11, verse 29. Then though the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation, just like Nineveh. And it seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, what is the sign? He goes on. For as Jonah, this is the sign, became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What was the sign of Jonah to the people of Nineveh? He didn't say, you guys got to believe me. I just came out of the belly of a fish. No. Repent. The Eeyore gospel, right? Repent. Okay. And people just responded to it. Now, what's key is the Ninevites are not Jews. He's saying, look at these people in Nineveh. They responded. And he goes to the queen of the south. We won't turn there, but this is the queen of Sheba, probably Ethiopia, which they, that at that point, was thought was the farthest away. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The story of the queen of the south is basically, and you can read about it in 1 Kings 10, when she hears that Solomon and his kingdom is awesome and she travels from the ends of the earth and brings all this wealth and she then sees and asks him a couple questions and he answers her and she goes, you are amazingly wisdom. God is great. Here's all this stuff. This is awesome. Again, a Gentile woman came from the ends of the earth and Jesus is like, and something more than, greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. Gentiles came from the end of the earth and, would, and could respond, how much more should they? And as you sit here today on the other side of the cross, after thousands of years of Christ's work on this planet, how much more should you respond? Gentiles from Nineveh, from a pagan nation, if they could repent, how much more should the people listening to Jesus and how much more should you right now? Repent. If you think we're any, any better than Nineveh, maybe you're not watching the news. 
Go to Hebrews 3 really briefly. Hebrews 3. I'm not going to go through it all. I just want to look at it briefly and just check out a couple things. I'm trying to keep us moving here. But in Hebrews 3, verse 7, I just want you to notice all the times it says today. That's all I want to do. Look at Hebrews 3. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, not harden your hearts, right? And he talks about responding. And he says, take care, brothers, in verse 12, verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He goes on and and says in verse 15, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And he goes on and describes the rebellion and whatnot. In chapter four, keep going, look at verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And so he goes on, let's see where we find another today here. Let's see what we see. Um, Verse four, uh, verse five, um, blar, blar, seven. And again, he appoints a certain day today saying, through David so long afterwards, and the word is already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 9, so then there remains the Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rest from his works as God did from his. And he describes this picture and then uh, talks about the, the, the word of God being sharper than a two-edged sword that goes into it. The, the basic point of this response in Hebrews is, off, is to look at this moment. The Bible does not call for you to wait. Jesus is standing in front of them. He's right in front of them and they don't see it. And he's telling them, you need to respond. I'm, I'm a bigger deal than Jonah was. I'm a bigger deal than Solomon, and you need to respond. And you say to yourself, I can see why they need to respond. If you could see that, do you think the stakes are any less high right this moment? Do you think that God orchestrated your life to bring you here to this awesome place, to hear this awesome sermon for nothing? But for real, do you think that when he talks about the word of God being sharp like a two-edged sword, like God is filled this place with his spirit. He's got his people here. He's brought you here for whatever reason he's done it. Do you think that the stakes aren't high? Now, I'm not saying you need to believe me because you'd be afraid, but I'm saying like, if this is true and if God is real and he is, then he is calling for you to make a choice right now. That's the point of Jesus saying to them. He's like, you can know all these things when you're ignorant it's because you want to be, because you can find out and you can know. But today, you need to decide. And you say, so indecision isn't wise, right? Because judgment is coming. But more than that, look at this last section. Because you say to yourself, what is this last, how does it capstone it all? Notice he's still speaking. If you use a red letter Bible, he's still speaking. Right? He says something greater than Jonah is here. And then he goes, no one after lighting a lamp puts in a cellar under a basket. Lamps are expensive. If you, don't, if you put a lamp on, you don't like cover it. You say, here's a light and you put a cover over it. That doesn't make sense. That's not what the purpose of a lamp is. You put it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. So in this case, they see the eye rather than receiving light, but giving light. But regardless, what you look at, what you see, the, the, the judgment you make is light or darkness. It's either light, look at this, when your eye, when you look in these things, your eyes either full of light or it's full of darkness. But notice what it doesn't say. Or it's in the middle. This, is, this kind of capstones everything he's just said. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body's full of light, having no part dark, it'll be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. What's the emphasis here? Look, the choice is clear. 
your arguments that Satan did it because of Satan, your arguments that, that maybe you could just self-improve, your arguments that, you know, well, let's just add all these other, Jesus is cool, but so are other things, right? And your arguments that I'll just wait and procrastinate, that's silly. And finally, he's saying, look, the choice is clear. There are no shades of gray. That's the whole point of this light or darkness analogy. And we see this, you know, this is replete throughout the gospel, throughout the Bible. Go to 1 John for a moment, 1 John chapter 1. There are no shades of gray. Just so we don't miss this, I, I just took one section to show you. Look at verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Well, that sounds kind of like what Jesus was saying, isn't it? If we say we have fellowship him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God is not gray. He's fully, he's not Gandalf the gray, okay? God is fully light, no darkness at all. How can you have fellowship with that? He says, you're a liar if you think that you can just remain as you are and do so. And in fact, he goes on, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. Well, that's how we do it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What this confusing seeming section is saying is that the line is very clear when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Jesus. And fellowship with him isn't great, meaning that he's not just winking and nodding at your sin. He's not just like, hey, your sin's not so bad. Look at what he did to Jesus. Did he give him special favoritism on the cross? He's like, well, that wasn't so bad. He fully poured out his wrath. Your sin, my sin is terrible. And it's still just as terrible. And fellowship with God never ceases to have that acknowledged. It never goes away. You never be like, well, now it's cool because you're a Christian. Your sin is just as bad, but his grace is just as much, which is why we go to him in confession. The most powerful thing you can do for intimacy in your life with the Lord is to regularly confess your daily sins to God so you can remain in fellowship with him. What does that look like? Confesses homo legeo, to say the same thing. God is light. There's no darkness in him. Don't lie to him. Real relationships are built on the truth. You start, come to him and say, I'm not light. I've been walking in darkness. Will you cleanse me from this darkness? And he goes, yeah, I will. That's the whole point. And then you have fellowship. That's Christianity. It's built on truth, but it's not built on shades of gray. Hey, this isn't really a sin, Jesus, but I'll confess this other one. He's like, you're a liar. You're not a Christian. In fact, he goes on in chapter two, verse 15, and he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Well, that's crazy. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That seems like a pretty stark line, doesn't it? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Listen, let me just say this really clearly. The danger is not only in a hard heart, but Christian, the danger is also in a dull heart a heart that doesn't recognize that it's limping between two opinions here. What do we mean by that? Think of, think of some of the stories you know. Think of the, some of the biblical characters that you don't want to be like. Samson, name basically means sunny. He gave in to the lusts of the flesh. And what happens to him? He ends up as a blind slave in a dark dungeon, committing suicide as his most powerful act. Lot gave in to the lust of the eyes. And he ended up as a drunk in a cave committing incest with his daughters. That's not very good. King Saul gave in to the pride of life and ended up seeking wisdom from a witch and committing suicide on a field of battle like a coward. 
that's a pretty clear line. The shade of gray doesn't, these guys don't look very good, do they? The, the, the light in them looked like a little bit like darkness, doesn't it? I'm not saying that Lot wasn't ultimately, I'm not dealing with their salvation issue. I'm not dealing with that. I'm just telling you like the light looked like a lot of darkness, doesn't it? That's not a very good testimony, is it? If you go back to, if you stay in 1 John and go to chapter 5, verse 12, or 21 rather, he ends this whole picture in 1 John and says this weird little statement that seems like out of place, but it's actually the whole point of his whole letter. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What do I mean by that? Think about the other side of that line. People like David, Moses, Peter, Abraham, all these guys sinned. They sinned, but the difference between them and the others is that they never forgot what the line was. When they sinned, they repented. When they sinned, they ran back to God. When they sinned, they threw themselves on the mercy of God, but they didn't minimize it. They didn't change the stakes. They didn't say, well, that's cool. That's not a big deal like these others. They didn't rationalize it. They always knew what the line was. They never forgot the line. They never forgot that the choice is always clear and that there are no shades of gray. They never forgot the line. So you say to yourself, well, Matt, I don't want to forget the line. What's it look like to apply this sermon today. Go to Colossians and we're going to end it here. I'm not preaching long. We started a tiny bit late. You're cool. All right. So Colossians chapter two, it's a short section. It looks long, but it's not. Notice what Paul says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. I'm, I'm, this is today for the Christ. So if you're not Let me just summarize it this way. If you're not a Christian, you need to respond to the things I said. I urge you, I beg you, be reconciled to God. There's an invitation for you to do that today. That's that's the invitation. But a lot of you here are Christians. So what's, what's in this message for you? Is the message that you need to keep going up to the altar again and again and keep rededicating your life to Christ? No, let me just cut to the chase. No, that's not it. Notice what Paul says. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those that allow to see, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I'm going to say this right now. If you're a Christian today, my application for you is not, there's other sermons where I'll do this. My application is not for you to go and think through your life and examine it. You could do that in other sermons. Today, that's not what I'm asking you to do. Today, I'm asking you to do something a little bit different. I'm trying to encourage you in a way that I don't normally encourage you. Because I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In other words, I want you to remember Christ so that no one will delude you. They will trick you with arguments that seem to make sense. Well, doesn't it make sense that we would give veneration to Mary? Because wouldn't you want veneration for your mother? Like, that seems like it makes sense. Like, don't let anyone delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body... Yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, how do we receive him? By grace through faith. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it, Christian, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. All around you, people are trying to take you captive. False religions and false views are trying to color in the gospel a different shade. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. What he's saying right now is these people in Colossae that were coming are similar to what we see today, and it's this, basically just this thing called Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism. The idea is that you can improve. Mormonism is a great example of this. You can ascend to levels. 
Gnosticism is that you can make yourself more spiritual. You can become closer to God. Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are as close to God as the apostle Paul was. You are as close to God. Like that's, that's the true situation of you sitting in your seat right now as much of a knucklehead as you are. And what he's saying is, we, have been, we don't need to do these things to become more spiritual. By virtue of his acts, you also already are spiritual. He says, in him, you were circumcised with a assertion made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. How? When? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through, the fa- through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespassing and circumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then verse 15, he disarmed rulers and authorities. Isn't that similar to what he just did in our passage? He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God, Satan doesn't know the future. He says, hey, Satan, give your best shot. And Satan's like, okay, I'm gonna put you on the cross. He's like, great, oh, look how weak I am. He goes, oh, wait, that cross that you just crucified me on is how I'm gonna save my saints. I'm gonna save my elect. The most triumphant thing, we wear a cross as a symbol of triumph. This is a giant smack in the face. That's like saying, hey, Jesus boxing with Satan. He says, hey, take your best shot. And he's like, boom, and he just self-punches and knocks him out. And he's like, what's up? That's what he just said is in the cross. And the whole point is this. He goes on, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And you already have Christ, right? Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels Go on detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and it grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, wise, if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have the appearance indeed of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, here's what it looks like to be all in for Jesus Christ. It does not mean constant altar calls. It does not mean constant rededications. Basically, he says, I want you to remember your baptism. Notice he says, why do you know that you're all in? The reason that we don't do altar calls, people did that because they wanted, churches did that because they wanted Christians. When Billy Graham would do his crusades, and I'm not dissing him for this necessarily, but he wanted people to hear the gospel and recognize that the gospel demands there's a line in the sand and it is a one moment moment where you step off from unbelief to belief. It's like stepping off the ledge of a building to be caught by a net. The moment you take that one step of faith, you're going to end up in that net. You're going to be justified, sanctified, glorified. That's the picture of salvation. The one moment picture of death to life where you say to someone, brother, like they said to Saul when he was saved by meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. This is the one moment. So how would you picture it? People say, well, walk up here and say this prayer. And I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to picture that salvation is a decision. Something changes you from death to life. We need to see that there's a real line in the sand. It's not a gradual thing. It's all of a sudden happens. But they're wrong. Here's why. The Bible gives us a picture, and it's not an altar call. It's called baptism. Baptism does not save you. It is a picture that we're supposed to remember about our identity of being all in for Jesus Christ. Baptism is the thing we do to picture what our faith is. In other words... Think about this for a minute. He says, remember in your baptism, you were already given all the fullness of God. You were already given all these things. In the baptism, you remember that you died and you were buried with them. That's when you go under the water and you're raised with them and you come up. Do not let anyone, Christian, delude you with endless advice for self-improvement. Remember what your baptism pictures and you are all in. 
You don't need all those things. Jesus made you new. You are born again in Jesus Christ through what he's accomplished, Christian. Stop trying to earn something he gives you. Do not let anyone tempt you with inaccurate sentimentalities. Remember what your baptism means. Remember what it means. You are already spiritual. You don't need to gather it and do all these things. And do not let anyone cause you to remain indecisive about living for Christ. You don't need to earn your actions. Christ has done it and you can act. Remember what your baptism settles once and for all. Christ is really who he says he is. He really accomplished what he said he would and he really rose again to prove it. And as a Christian, when you think about what it means to be on team Christ, to believe these things, I want you to picture how you've identified with those realities and remember it as you walk forward. Let's take a quick look at a video. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, uh, I just thank you so much for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Please strip away from us all of the distractions, the distortions, the delays that cause us not to put our faith fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ. As Christians that have committed ourselves to this, have put our faith in his finished work, help us to remember what we committed ourselves to. We committed ourselves that we died. We were buried with him. That all the law and all the sins that you know that we committed, that they were punished. They were fully punished and we died and we were buried. And in Christ, we rose again to new life. And the picture as we remember what this means is an all or nothing picture. We, we didn't leave some sins behind. We didn't leave something. We fully was, were immersed in death and fully left all that behind and fully rose up again in Christ. God, so much of us, so many of us today, we feel so half-hearted. We feel so easily discouraged. I pray each of us know that this very second right now, we have as much of you as we had the moment we were saved. We have everything we need for a life of godliness. We can walk in faith. We can follow you by virtue of what you've done. Please, God, save us from all the weird things that cause us to feel inadequate, unable, and indifferent to your truths. God, I pray you would motivate us with the joy of the gospel, that we would see this all-or-nothing choice, and you would save us from all the silly shades of gray we try to color it in with. Would you use this sermon in a profound way and help us to walk in victory in Jesus' name? Amen.